Preparatory Academy. So continue to pray for them. Pray that they are indeed uh, uh, rested, rejuvenated, and, and some great time of connection with each other and with the Lord. And so before we, um, before we get into the sermon this morning, I want to give a little background to our text in Mark chapter 3 as you guys are turning there in your Bibles. So what's been happening at this point is that Jesus is going around doing what Jesus does. He's performing miracles. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's teaching the truth of God's word. And as he's doing these things, all of them very good things, some people are loving it and they're loving him. They're believing in him. They're receiving him. They're grateful for all the good things he's doing. Others are actually offended at what Jesus is doing, particularly the religious leaders, the religious elite of the day. And what we read actually at the beginning of Mark chapter 3 is that Jesus is in the synagogue, which is the Jewish meeting place of the day, and he sees a man with a withered hand, and in graciousness, he decides to heal this man's hand. Well, in response to Jesus choosing to do good by this man, the religious leaders who are present decide that this good deed is enough to kill Jesus, to destroy Jesus, because they believe that they can set the standard that no work, not even good work, not even healing and life-saving work can be done on a Sabbath day. And so this is what's happening as we come to our passage in Mark chapter 3 and verse 20. While some people are, are welcoming Jesus, Others are strongly opposing him, even to the point of wanting to destroy him. And I believe the reason they're doing this is because either one, they're failing to recognize Jesus as the son of God, as the Messiah, or they recognize him fairly well. They're just refusing to receive him. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to consider and ask ourselves the, the question, what causes us to fail to recognize, or worse, to receive Jesus when he's found among us? What causes us to not receive Jesus or recognize him for who he is? And so we're going to read Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. We'll pray together and then we'll jump in. You know, I just want to say... Uh, I decided when we were outside that I was no longer going to be tethered to the podium, that I was going to walk around some, right? And so when I decided to do that, the lapel mic, the wireless mic died. And then we came in and I decided to do that with this thing, right? And then this thing died. And so now I am literally tethered to this thing. Huh? No, I don't want to trip. So I'm going to stay right here. But we're going to read Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. And then we'll pray and then we'll jump in. So in verse 20, it says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan 
opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me, friends. Lord God, this morning, as we come together to worship, we've experienced our share of difficulty. And my prayer right now, Lord, is that if there be any any element of the enemy coming against the work you desire to do in our hearts and minds, that you would utterly cancel and destroy his plans in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord God, that you would be pleased, Father, to be present among us, to help us to see and hear with clarity what it is you have for us in your word this morning. And Lord, may your word accomplish exactly what it is you have, you have for it for us today. Help us, Lord, to know you, to love you, to have hearts that are ready to receive you whenever we see or encounter you in your word, in our community, in prayer. Lord God, let us be transformed by truth. Let us be those who love your word and truth. Lord, grant me, Holy Spirit, that I can proclaim your truth with clarity, with conviction. And Lord, may your name be glorified in all that is said. Be with those who couldn't be with us this morning. Grant them your comfort. Grant them the peace of your presence. And I pray they would be with us again soon. All this we ask in the matchless name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. And amen. And so, as we read the passage that we just read, you may have gotten the impression that we were reading three different stories about Jesus' family, about these religious leaders, and then some other, some other people, particularly Jesus' family again. But actually, what we're reading, what we're looking at here are two different stories. The beginning of one story, with verse 20... And then we're reading another story placed right in the middle. And then at the end, beginning in verse 30 or 31, we're reading the conclusion of that first story. And what Mark is doing is he's utilizing a writing style, right, where you take one story and you interpose it or place it right in the middle of another story. And the hope with this writing style is that you would be able to better see the common theme or lesson or thread running through both stories. And what Mark wants us to see, particularly through these two stories, when he writes it the way he does, puts one story in the middle of another story, is he wants us to see 
that the people who failed to recognize or receive Jesus the most, or the worst, if you will, were those who should have recognized him because they lived in the closest proximity to him. He wants us to see that those who should have recognized him and received him, received him the least, even though they were supposed to be closest in relationship to him. And so Mark introduces the first group of people in verse 21, and he just tells us that it's Jesus's family. But when we read down to the conclusion in verse 31, we read that this family was made up specifically of Jesus's mother, Mary, and his brothers. Now, if that sounds a little confusing to you, yes, Mary did have other children after Jesus was born with her husband, Joseph. And so these are those family members. And we read that these family members came to get Jesus. They came to grab him. They came pretty much to snatch him up from where he was because they had heard that Jesus had been going about doing so many good things to the point where he hadn't even eaten. Jesus was serving to the point where he wasn't taking concern for himself. And instead of them assuming that Jesus' compassion for others was so great that he put them ahead of himself, they just assumed that he was going insane. Isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters, that today, if you would put anyone else's concern ahead of your own, you are considered out of your mind. Yet this is the example that Jesus left for us. But the second group of people that we read, that we read about, are the scribes, or they're the teacher, teachers of the law of the Old Testament. And they came all the way from the big city, the big town of Jerusalem, to little old Nazareth just to find Jesus. These are the same men who, at the beginning of chapter 3, decided that they would destroy Jesus. So they've come all the way from Jerusalem to Nazareth to find Jesus. And I want to explain to you why that, how significant that is, Okay. Nazareth was such a small and insignificant town that the saying about Nazareth was, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jerusalem was the big city, right? Jerusalem was like New York City. So for these men to travel from Jerusalem to Nazareth just to look for Jesus would be like someone who lived in like Fifth Avenue or like 42nd Street, Times Square, the top of the world in New York City, and came all the way down to a little town like, like I don't know, Vidaya, Georgia. Who knows where Vidaya is? Just a few of you, right? And you probably went there to get some, some farm, to farm or something, right? There's nothing in Vidaya except, I think, onions, But these men were so set on destroying Jesus for the good that he he did that they went from the top of the world to the middle of nowhere to find him. And like Jesus' family, they saw all the miracles he was doing. They saw the way he was delivering people from bondage, from demonic oppression and being oppressed by demons. And they determined... That if Jesus is able to do these good things, in the name of God no less, that somehow he himself is possessed by a demon. 
they actually assume that Jesus is dismantling the work of Satan by the power of Satan. And so Jesus goes on to tell them very simply how ridiculous that is. But, but understand the connection that Jesus is trying to make. Jesus tells them a short parable and he says this. He says, a house divided against itself can't stand. And essentially what he's saying is Satan's house is not divided against itself. Satan's house actually stands really strong. He goes as far as to say that Satan is the strong man. But what Jesus is inferring is that there is a house that is indeed divided and falling in and of itself. And it's the house that you men are building. Jesus is showing them that it's not Satan that is destroying himself. It's you that are seeking to destroy the very work of God in your midst. And the connection between these groups, as we said before, brothers and sisters, is that although these are the people who should know who Jesus is intimately, deeply, clearly because of their proximity or closeness to his life, they're the ones who can't get it. They can't see it. They won't receive him. You see, Mary and her sons, better than anybody, better than anybody in the world, knew that God was Jesus' daddy, right? Mary was there. Mary and her sons were there when Jesus was at the wedding and he turned the water into wine, right? These teachers of the law, they were there when the man's hand was withered and Jesus spoke a good word and his hand was made well. They know who Jesus is. What's more, the teachers of the law, they know from the scriptures that they've poured over all of their lives that no one can have the kind of spiritual authority that Jesus had unless it was done through the power, it was given through the power of God. And this is where blasphemy in the Holy Spirit comes to play here that Jesus speaks about in verse 29. And you'll see, see some some uh, definitions up on on the screen. There's a man, a scholar, his name is William Lane. He wrote a fantastic book or commentary on the book of Mark. And he defines blasphemy in this way. He says, blasphemy is an expression of defiant hostility toward God. And so blasphemy against God, it's both defiant, right? Clearly opposed to God. And it's also willful, It's active. It's not passive. And so then blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Lane says, is the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus's word and act. Tell you a funny story. It's been about maybe 10 years ago. I don't know when YouTube started. I I knew I, I was around. I was an adult, but it's been a few years ago, close to when YouTube first started, and there was this collage video going around of a group of people, all different races and nationalities, and, and men, women, children, adults, and they were all proclaiming blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So they would come on the screen, they would say, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Then it would go to someone else, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And it was an idea to be just, just you know, try to be defiant against God. And the problem with this, as I watched this, I thought to myself, in a few years, these people are going to realize how stupid this is and actually repent and become Christians and look back on this foolishness. 
Because the reality is that isn't blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's a lot like what Michael Scott did. Have you ever seen The Office? Have you read The Office? And Michael Scott finds himself in great financial uh, uh, turmoil. And so someone tells him he can declare bankruptcy to get out of his financial turmoil. And so he goes out and stands in the middle of the office and he says, I declare bankruptcy. Right. And then someone comes in to his office and says, Mike, I just want you to know that what you just did is nothing. Right. You, you can't just say bankruptcy and then you're bankrupt. Right. Same thing with these people who are just saying blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You cannot say blasphemy against the Holy Spirit with actually no knowledge of blasphemy or the Holy Spirit of which you are blaspheming. So. In order for blasphemy to be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, one has to clearly, to some degree, see and understand what he or she is witnessing as being the power of God, but then yet choose to call that thing evil. That's what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. This is why the teachers of the law, these scribes, were guilty of the unforgivable sin of blasphemy and why even Jesus' family was close to being guilty of it themselves. Both of these groups lived with such nearness to Jesus himself and the religious leaders lived with such closeness to the scriptures that they should have recognized him. They should have received him. They should have known who he was as the Messiah of God. They should have known that there was no denying the power that he showed, but yet they still rejected him. They still refused to believe them. Brothers and sisters, I want to say it's for two reasons, two reasons, and then I'll sit down this morning. And the first reason is this, why I think that those who were closest to him could not recognize and receive him. And that first reason is this, because familiarity breeds complacency or even contempt. In Mark chapter 6, while Jesus is back in his hometown, Mark tells us that Jesus wasn't able to do any miracles. It says that he can do a few miracles because there was so little faith in him in his hometown. In Mark 6, we read that famous passage, that famous verse from, from Jesus where he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. In other words, brothers and sisters, the people of Jesus' hometown could not recognize or receive his glory because they'd become too familiar with his humanity. They could not recognize who Jesus was, the Son of God, because they'd become too familiar with him being just another little old carpenter in the neighborhood. And for us, brothers and sisters, this speaks to the danger of religiosity. This speaks to the danger of going through religious motions, of just doing the things that we think we're supposed to do without actually engaging God, with God just becoming another bland or powerless fixture in our lives. With the Bible just becoming another good book on our coffee tables. This was the problem of the religious leaders who opposed him. This was the problem of his family who thought he was insane. They were so good at practicing the Jewish religion, at keeping the Sabbath, at following the Old Testament law, that they could not recognize the God of the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath, the God of the commandments right in their midst. 
brothers and sisters, be aware. Take heed, lest we too find ourselves unable to recognize Jesus because he does not fit our religious norms. Beware, brothers and sisters, that we fail to see Jesus because with all the doings that we do as good religious people, we never actually engage God himself. And my encouragement to all of us is if you find yourself in some level of complacency, and I think we all do to some point, we all do to some degree, we have a great blessing in the Bible. You see, because in the Bible, we get to revisit God. We get to see God again as he is. We get to revisit God in the books of Genesis through Joshua and experience afresh his holiness and his desire to set a people apart for himself. Amen? We get to revisit God in the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, and experience his faithfulness to a wayward and disloyal people. We get to revisit God in the Gospels and experience to his tender love and mercy when he takes on flesh and dies for our sins. We get to revisit God in the book of Acts and experience his mighty work through people who are fully surrendered to him. We get to experience God turning the world upside down through just a handful of people who would say, yes, God, I'm here. Send me. So if you find yourself being complacent with the God of your religion, may I encourage you this morning to reengage with the God of the Bible. And the second reason why we may fail to recognize or receive him when he shows himself among us, when Jesus is present, when we engage, when we see him in the scriptures, a sermon or whatever it may be, is this. is because our brokenness or our sin can at times feel more safe or comfortable than freedom. Right. One of the most intriguing things I'll try to walk around a little bit. One of the most intriguing things I learned in grad school was about how people who've been abused, who've experienced any level of significant unhealthy environment in their lives, that they can actually develop a sense of of feeling at home in that unhealthiness to the point where as they grow, they can actually find comfort in engaging in unhealthy practice or putting themselves back in unhealthy environments. And, and it, was, it, it floored me when I thought about that, but of course I went in my mind and thought that we all kind of do that to some degree, right? We all do this. And, and i never forget a story we talked about that I learned in this time. There was a little boy, I want to say it was in Philadelphia or some major city, but it was a little boy who was about the age of one or two. And his parents were drug addicted, and I think one died, and I I think his mother had died, and his father just left him alone in an abandoned apartment. And when the authorities found this little boy in the apartment, he was filthy, covered in, in dirt. He was alone, of course. And in this apartment, he was sustaining himself by eating the trash that had littered the, the, the apartment. This is a true story. Some of the trash was organic, edible stuff. Some of it wasn't. And so the the young man was taken from that apartment. He was placed into the child care system. 
And over time, he developed some behavioral issues, which is understandable. And with the behavioral issues, they would often send him to his room to be alone as punishment. And what the workers, those who ran this house, learned after a while is that whenever he was sent to his room or whenever he felt any kind of stress or anything, that he would actually reach out for garbage to eat. He would look to eat something inedible, something like chalk or something like that. And what these workers of, the, of this house, what they learned was that although it had been years since he had been saved, since he had been delivered from the loneliness of that abandoned apartment where he ate garbage to survive, whenever he experienced the pain of loneliness in his room, he reached for that same garbage to comfort himself. Why would these religious leaders seek to kill Jesus for all that he is doing? Because like this little boy, brothers and sisters, they found more comfort in the garbage of their life than in the freedom that Jesus provided. Like this little boy, brothers and sisters, they found more comfort in their brokenness, in the hardness of their hearts, in their own sin, than in the salvation of God himself in their midst. So much so that they'd rather destroy Jesus than be free. So much so that they'd rather, they'd rather blaspheme God than revere his holiness. And friends, let us not lie lie to ourselves because we too are prone to reaching for garbage instead of God. Amen? We too are prone for reaching for garbage. Think about what you reach for whenever you feel distressed. Right? How do you cope with the difficult parts of your life? Where do you look for answers to the difficult questions of life? Is God first on your list? Is his word first on your list? Are you turning to brothers and sisters who you know love God and who love you and will point you towards Jesus? Are we turning to that friend that we, we say it's a safe place for us to vent, but in reality we know we love talking to him because they'll never challenge us when we're dead wrong. Right? If I'm honest, brothers and sisters, I can't say that I always reach for God. And I think if we're all honest, we will be honest that we don't always reach for God first. We don't always reach for healthy community first. We don't always reach for the word of God first. And over this past year and a half, brothers and sisters, if you're honest with yourself, you developed some ways of just coping and making it through life that did not involve God and his word. Amen. Is it just me? But as the world opens up again, as we experience some level of normalcy, God has given us a great opportunity. We have an opportunity to process all that we went through this past year. We have an opportunity to kind of assess all the different coping mechanisms that have taken up place in our hearts and in our lives. 
And we have the opportunity to reorient those spaces in our lives, to take them off of those wayward tracks they were on and place them on tracks that are leading us towards healthier habits, towards healthier community, towards God himself. We have an opportunity to develop some healthier rhythms and habits and healthier relationships with other brothers and sisters. And friends, let me tell you something. Jesus is here with us to offer us freedom, to release us from brokenness and the sin that we've clung to. And if only we would turn to Jesus, it could be ours. Jesus is here to grant us healing. Jesus is here to grant us freedom. If only we will avail ourselves of opportunities to recognize where Jesus is work and yield ourselves to that work happening in us. You know, it's so interesting. And I say this, I say this is not part of my notes, which you probably can't tell what's part of my notes. Most, probably most of what I said isn't even written down. You don't know that, but, but one of the things that has been helpful to me is, you know, uh, most of my life or adult life, fitness has been a huge thing, right? Going to the gym and things. And this past year, the gym shut down. Uh, my baby came and and so I just wasn't going to the gym and 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 uh, you know got quite unhealthy if I'm honest and uh, and I went back to the gym a couple weeks ago for the first time and man it was like it, it was like a spiritual experience and I don't mean to over spiritualize it but it was like wow you know um, I've been missing parts of what it meant for me to be a healthier individual. And what I want to encourage all of us to do in this season as we're moving out of here is to consider those things. What parts of yourself that make you a healthier individual has been lost during this season? Don't don't just jump back into to work full time in the office, the, the, the rat race, as they call it, and just let these new coping mechanisms be another problem in your life. Let God in. Let let friends in. Let them figure that out. Assess. Process. And let's be healthier versions of ourselves we get back into the world what was god teaching us in this time let's take this with us into this new season and now returning back to the notes let's talk, talk about a few places where we can actually find jesus always at work always present offering us healing offering us transformation in the first place is in the bible right go figure in the bible jesus is always present in his word And when we read the Bible, when we engage the Bible with open hearts, hearts intent on actually doing what Jesus says when he shows us what he shows us and says to us what he says to us, then we are capitalizing on opportunities for Jesus to perform his healing and transformative work in us. So the Bible is the first place. The second place we get to look, friends, is in Christian community. I think sometimes we take for granted that Jesus hasn't given us the promise of a lot of things that we we, we think he, he he promised us, right? We get really met, we get really upset. I'm not the only one. I know I'm not. When that bank account dwindles below a certain number, and sometimes it just stays below that number, and we look to God and say, God, well, what is this? Well, God didn't promise you a certain number in your bank account. But you know what God did promise? He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there in the midst. When we get together to pray together, to worship together, to read our Bibles or good books together, Jesus has promised to be there with us. So if you're looking for Jesus to show up in your life, here's the question. When have you been with other brothers and sisters praying and worshiping? I was going to go out, but I'm going to move on. 
Praise the Lord. And the last one is this, friends, in communion. In communion. And I know this one is a little bit different for us with the cultures and, and, and church backgrounds we, we come from. But every Sunday here at Redeemer, you may have missed it, but we mentioned that Jesus is mysteriously present in the elements and that wafer and that juice that we drink. And what we're saying, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus has promised to be present with us in a very real yet mysterious way when we take of those blessed elements. And so if you're looking for Jesus to be at work quite literally in your life, he is present to work in you through the sacrament of communion. When we take of that communion in faith, Jesus is forming more of himself in us. He is bringing about reconciliation and redemption and healing and renewal in us through that sacrament. And when we don't take of communion, we're missing it. That's why here at Redeemer, we give, give you every opportunity, every Sunday to take it. And let's take it together and experience Jesus. Because, friends, listen, Jesus is with us. And I implore you today, do not allow our religiosity. Don't even allow your brokenness to cause you to miss or reject him. Keep leaning in to opportunities to experience him as he is, to be loved by him as he so dearly loves you, and to be shaped by him as he so desires for us to look more and more like him in this world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I just thank you so much for all your kindness towards us, that you're committed to us. You won't ever leave us. You've promised that your word would not return void. And I pray today, Lord, that your word would indeed go out, water the seeds that you've sown in our hearts, and you would indeed reap an increase, 30, 60, and 100 fold times that which was sown. Be glorified, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.